Hey everybody, when you hear that great music, you know that it's time for on the lighter side of baseball and during the COVID-19 period of time, we try to be light and we try to provide some entertainment and today I am incredibly happy and fortunate to have a, a friend of mine that I've known for a long time. He was the uh, former manager of the Omaha Royals and I guarantee nobody else will ever introduce him exclusively that way. John Waffle, <laughs> Duke, how are you doing, man? Doing great, Jamie. How are you doing today? Well, I'm doing good and uh, always hopeful that uh, we're going to turn the corner and, and uh, find some therapies and some vaccines for COVID-19. So in the meantime, just try to get everybody's mind off of it for a few minutes and uh, talk a little baseball. How about you? That is outstanding. I think uh, once we get baseball back, I think it will help the country very much in uh, making it the lighter side of the world, <laughs> as you say, the lighter side of baseball, because we definitely need entertainment. I think all of the sports channels like ESPN and MLB are having a hard time putting on reruns every single day. You know what? As a uh, hopeless baseball fan, I still, <laughs> I hate to admit it, I still like watching some of those uh, old things. Don't get me wrong. I'd love to watch uh, from my season tickets uh, in Kansas City and Chicago. I'd love to watch live baseball. But even though I was at the Kerry Wood 920 strikeout game in 1998, it's on this afternoon. And if I don't watch it, I'll record it. Now, how pathetic is that? Uh, I think it's realistic in the day we, days we live in now <laughs> to do something like that because you can only read so much. And you can only play so much golf. We talked the other day. I have been playing a little bit of golf, which which really helps, especially my wife getting me out of the house. Yeah, I um, <laughs> I've been doing the same thing. And as I told you, the way I hit a golf ball, I don't come anywhere near anybody else to potentially spread uh, <laughs> this thing. So you mean you're in some places, Jamie, where others have never been? Exactly. The only <laughs> the, the only ones that I come in contact with are generally in, in the other fairway that are going the, the wrong way. So. <laughs> but it is, it, it is a good outlet. And, uh, and uh, you know, we uh, try to make do with what we can. And uh, hopefully we'll get you back to uh, spring training where I think you were down in, uh, were you in Arizona or Florida? Uh, I know you've got both coasts covered with your son and with the Royals. Yeah, I was just in uh, Arizona working. I ended up coming back to Kansas City on March 17th, a couple of days after we shut down everything. Um, it was kind of sad because all our new ownership was out there for a few days uh, to watch some baseball, and they didn't get to see any baseball. It rained two or three days, and then they shut down spring training, so it was kind of unfortunate. I've got to meet John Sherman a couple of times and what a great guy he is and how caring he is for all of our families and for all of our personnel that we're safe. And fortunately, we have not had one case in our whole organization. We probably had 250 people counting all the staff in spring training, all the players, front office people, and uh, close quarters, obviously, and, and no problems at all. So we were very thankful for that. Well, for those people out there, John Sherman is the new owner of the uh, Kansas City Royals. He put together a, a big-time ownership group. He uh, formerly owned about 30% of the Cleveland Indians, so he knows how the 
how the game is played, and he is a Kansas Cityan, which is uh, spectacular. So I'm glad you had the chance to meet him. I hope to uh, meet him someday, and uh, I hope he puts together a winning a winning uh, team because we in the Kansas City area uh, certainly enjoyed the run the Royals just went on. I was a little bit surprised that you weren't the 49% owner along with John Sherman. Well, I'll tell you what, digging <laughs> around, it's funny, and I'm not – you know, I got a problem. I was, I, I just love talking to you, and I love talking baseball. Um, Jerry Reinsdorf, when Ewing Kaufman uh, passed away, and there was a board of uh, uh, running the Royals, including Rick Green from Utila Corp and Jan Kramer and Herc and and maybe Glass. Reinsdorf said, "You know, uh, Mr. C looked like she wants to put together a group to." to buy the Royals, I think, and this is about, shows you how long ago it was. He says, I think for 35 or 40 million, you might be able to get the team. And I go, well, I got 10 bucks and uh, I, I'll try to find a few other people. Still short, John. Yeah, <laughs> I hear you. Well, well, let me, uh, let me tell you, when I started this podcast about, oh, last year, one reason was I just enjoy talking about the father, son, the father, daughter relationship on how, people get the baseball bug. And then uh, now that uh, you and I are sort of the same age, now that we have kids and grandkids, how you pass that along to your kids. And for the folks out there, I, I introduced John as the uh, former manager of the Omaha Royals. John played for 10 years in the uh, major leagues, all 10 years with the Royals. He was on two championship teams in 1980 and 1985. He managed and uh, in not only the minor leagues in Omaha for my family who owned the Omaha Royals at that time, but he was a successful manager in the major leagues, finishing over 500 and just a, an all around great guy. So I haven't said all that, John, <laughs> tell us what in the world uh, you are doing now for the Royals. Well, I'm working in the minor leagues in player development. I'm a special assistant in player development slash golf coordinator, I think, because I put together a spring training golf tournament for all the staff. And uh, we were able to get that in the day before I left to come back to Kansas City. But my main job is to go around and evaluate all our minor league teams, Jamie. We have seven minor league teams around the country. Most people know about Omaha and Northwest Arkansas. But we also have teams in Burlington, North Carolina, Wilmington, Delaware, Lexington, Kentucky, Idaho Falls, Idaho, and a rookie team in Surprise, Arizona. So I travel around and, and get in uniform still at 70, which a lot of people would think is pretty amazing in itself, and uh, teach a little bit occasionally. I love to teach base running uh, because of my base running ability as a player. It's kind of a passion for me. So I do that a little bit, evaluate and write reports on all our guys to tell our front office people whether guys uh, my, my opinion anyway there's a lot of opinions that go into this but my opinion whether guys are ready to move on to the next level or how they're doing at the current time when I go in there so I usually go in for five days for all our seven teams so I'm kind of part-time now I only spent about 35 days on the road where it used to be about 70 or 80 on the road so I still enjoy it my wife thinks it's good for me to be around the young kids and I agree plus it gets me out of the house for her <laughs> and uh, it's something that, you know, I've been in, it'll be 50 years next year that I've been in baseball. So it's something that's kind of hard to 
to quit. Uh, I love the game still. I love being around the younger players, especially, and, and to see them excited every day to come to the ballpark and their passion for it uh, keeps me going. Well, do they still uh, uh, put you in uniform number 12 uh, when you get yeah. out of the field? Yep, still number 12. Hey, one other trivia question that I can give you or answer. Uh, you mentioned me being in Omaha and Kansas City. I am the only guy that has played and managed and managed in both Omaha and Kansas City, so that's kind of special too for me. That is pretty cool, and let me tell you, uh, we we loved it when when you were in Omaha. And let me tell you a funny story that uh, maybe never uh, shared with you, but when uh, my family got the team in 1985, of course. Uh, that was a pretty big year. The Royals won the uh, World Series. That, I believe, was your final season. Play. Yeah, I was very fortunate that I got to experience that win in 85 as my last year. Yeah, how cool was that? And in Omaha, we started out with Gene Lamont, and I think we might have gone to Bullsey, John Bulls, and then, uh-huh. uh, and then um, uh, the pitching coach, Frank, was it um, was Frank? Frank Funk. Frank Funk. Yeah, Frank Funk took yeah. over and – we won some games with Frank. And so my uncle, you know, reread the contract and the contract said, uh, uncle Gus gets to pick the, the manager. And he goes, I want funk. And he said, funk's our guy. And, uh, you know, he said, Jamie, you're our lawyer. You put this stuff together. And, uh, that's our guy. I call shareholders and tell him we want funk. So of course, Shareholds calls me at midnight and says, you know, your uncle keeps bugging me and tell me he's picking the manager and I got news for him. It's John Wathen's going down there to man it. <laughs> and Gus goes, who's this waffle guy? Anyway, I don't know anybody named waffle. <laughs> and I go, look, he's a great guy. You'll love him. And as it turned out, I'll cut to the chase. You were the, the his favorite, the most respected guy. Uh, you treated him so well. So my family really, really has a soft spot in their heart for you, John. Well, it goes both ways because Gus treated me very, very well. I, I really enjoyed our relationship. And uh, as I told you before, when I got to the big leagues to manage in Kansas City, he invited me to his house in the suburbs of Chicago and uh, spent a day over at his house, at house and really enjoyed getting to know him even better that day. He uh, he he appreciated that, uh, and uh, and so did so did his family. So you know, like I said, I've got a, a personal uh, high regard for you, and and I've I know I've shared that with you. I've uh, gotten to know you in different ways through different times. But be that as it may, uh, I also have to tell you, you are not the first University of San Diego baseball alum to be on this show. How about that? Probably uh, a kid by the name of Solis. Well, I would guess. Correct. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I knew his dad. I knew his dad way before him, uh, Bob, and uh, had done some trips over to Saint Croix, where he was huge into an orphanage over there, as you know, and uh, you know got to got to spend some time with Davy Nelson, our mutual friend, who I played with in Kansas City, and had a blast over there with him and. Uh, his, his son uh, did well, got to the big leagues, and I don't know his status right now. I know he had some arm problems. I don't know if he's still playing or not. You know, as a manager with a winning record in the major leagues, which is no – I mean, you've, you had an incredible record. You, you hit, I believe, 305 in uh, maybe 19 
80 or 85? One of those. 19, 1980. Yeah, that was my best year by far. You know, that was a special year. We hit uh, 285 as a team that year. We played the Phillies in the World Series, unfortunately, and lost. But we had about six or seven guys on that club that hit over 300. It was a phenomenal, phenomenal year. That 285 as a team, I think, was the highest team batting average in the American League in like 30 years. Well, I'll tell you what. That was the second year that I had season tickets. I just gotten out of the military the year before. And, and I got to say that I've seen an awful lot of baseball games, but the afternoon game where you guys in the playoffs beat the Yankees mm-hmm. uh, might have been 7-2, to 7-3. to three, I can't remember, but that was – one of the best games I've ever seen. Do you remember that? I'm sure you do. I remember all those games very well. Of course, uh, George's uh, three-run homer off Gossage to clinch it uh, was special. Probably the only time I was ever in a Yankee Stadium where you could hear a pin drop when he hit that home run. That cool? I still get still get chills thinking about it. And uh, Fred White, our, our former uh, radio announcer, was had the call, and uh, I can still hear him saying, you know, Deep to right field, deep to right field, upper deck gone, you know, or something to that, that effect. Yeah. And uh, it, it was a special time for Kansas City, you know, especially, Jamie, because we had lost to the Yankees in 76, 77, and 78. And to finally beat them in 1980 was kind of like either playing in the World Series or winning in the World Series. You know, as a, as a young player, I always wanted to play in the big leagues from the time I was eight years old. Then, of course, when you do get the chance to sign – with the Kansas City Royals in 1971 for me. And then then your thoughts are, okay, I'm in the big leagues. I want to stay in the big leagues. I want to play in a World Series. And fortunate enough, I was able to play in 1980 in the World Series and then be on the team that won in 1985. So it was very, very special. What a, what a great time. I noticed in uh, – we'll get back to the 1980 team in a minute, but I noticed – that uh, one year you were uh, fortunate to play in all three levels of uh, minor league baseball. Is that am I am I correct in that? Yeah, that was that was a strange situation. I was only in my uh, second year in pro ball, and normally you don't even think about Triple A at that point. I was still in A ball, and Tom Harmon was our catcher in Omaha at the time, and he had to go into active duty for a couple of weeks uh, in the reserves, and so. I, being a, a guy that was a college kid from University of San Diego and a little bit older, my second year in, in A-ball, uh, got the call to fill in in Omaha and be the backup catcher for a couple of weeks. And it just so happened that uh, I played pretty well for Jack McKeon and got to go to Omaha for, I thought, a couple of weeks while he was gone. But after the two weeks, I had played well enough that Jack McKeon, our manager, wanted to keep me for a few more weeks. So I was able to stay about a month. And probably would have finished the season in Omaha, except that uh, John Sullivan was our player coach down in Jacksonville, and he was probably 37 or 8 at the time, and uh, decided that they needed another catcher down there because he couldn't catch every day like he would, they wanted him to. So I went yeah. to Omaha for the last – or excuse me, from Omaha to Jacksonville the last couple of weeks to end the season. So that's how I get my three stops in 1972. Well, I thought that was a pretty cool deal. And playing for Trader Jack, that had to be a fun uh, fun deal. And it obviously yeah. paid off in the future, too. It did. Uh, 
you know, I thought I was going to die in the Southern League in Jacksonville because I ended up the last two weeks there in 72 and then played there all of 73 and all of 74. Hit about 250 or 60 down there and thought, uh, boy, this league is tough. <laughs> How did I do it in Omaha that month? And hit pretty well and played pretty well in Omaha. Luckily, Jack McKeon invited me to spring training in, I think, 74 or 5. And only got one at bat, I think, the whole spring. But uh, it was my first taste of the big leagues to go to spring training. And then, of course, Whitey Herzog took over. And I uh, got put on the roster after having a good year in 75 in Omaha. And Whitey got me to the big leagues in 1976. So I'll always remember that. Well, <clears throat> and Whitey uh, got my good, my best friend, and who we've been talking a little bit about. And one of the other reasons that I do this podcast, Dave Nelson, Mm-hmm. Whitey had managed Dave in uh, Texas when Nelly was, you know, made the all-star team and had a great year in 1973. He got hurt running into Lenny Randall in 74. And then uh, uh, Joe Burke went from Texas to Kansas City and Whitey Herzog followed and, and they brought Nelly. So you got to, uh, uh, I don't know if that was the first time you'd met Dave, but he was on a couple of years rosters, although he didn't play a lot in 76, 77 with the Royals, and you were on that team? Yeah, Dave, Dave was uh, a consummate professional, and better than that, a great guy. And uh, we, we both miss him a lot, as, as do a lot of people in baseball, because he was a class act uh, all the way on the field and off the field. He, uh, he really was a good, good guy and a good friend to a lot of people. And, uh, you know, it's funny – um, everybody that would talk to him and some people have expressed this more eloquent than eloquently than I have. But I mean, if you, a five minute conversation with Nelly led to a lifetime relationship, the guy was like, a, had a computer brain for, for friends, for friends, family, for kids without, mm-hmm. you know, without looking at his phone to figure out, you know, that you've got a kid named Dusty and speaking of Dusty, how, how in the world did, uh, how did your kids end up in baseball? I mean, that's a <laughs> Yeah, that's a that's kind of a funny story. When the kids were small, I grew up with just a, a mom who raised three boys by herself in San Diego after she separated from my father in Iowa. And watching other dads, since I didn't really have a dad around, I saw how they pushed their kids into different sports, so much so that a few of my friends said, I don't want to play anymore. My dad's pushing me, and I have to practice all the time, and I don't want to do this. I want to do something else. So, I thought to myself back then as a kid, even if ever I have a family and have kids, I'm never going to push them into sports. I'm going to want, want them to do what they want to do. So I told my kids, don't play baseball for me. You know, that's all I knew growing up was me going to the ballpark and being gone a lot. I said, it's a tough life and you don't know if you're going to make it. And if you know, if you want to play the, the cello or be an attorney well, maybe I didn't say that, Jay. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> do what you want to do, but whatever you decide to do, have a passion for it. And so I, because I didn't push them at all, I think that's uh, probably helped them get into baseball. Both my sons uh, played a lot of baseball professionally. And my daughter is uh, still in baseball after 15 years. She runs our alumni for the Royals and does all George Brett's stuff and does media credentials and uh, so I'm proud of all of them that they uh, decided on a path of baseball. And uh, the one thing I said, repeating myself, you got to have a passion for it. And they all did have a passion for it. Derek, my middle one, 
he played 11 years in the minor leagues, didn't make it to the big leagues, but now he owns a moving company, secured moving in Kansas City. And my daughter, as I said, still works for the Royals and does a fantastic job, by the way, in our fantasy camp. We have that every year with about 20 alumni and about 100 campers, and it's just a blast. I don't know if the campers have more fun or the alumni do getting together and telling old war stories. And the stories change year by year, and they get a little better, especially with a couple of beers sitting around after our workouts and games in surprise. But I'm, I'm proud of all of them. Dusty, Dusty is uh, – yeah, he's the third base coach for the Phillies now. This will be his third year if we ever get started. And he played 15 years in the minor leagues as a non-drafted catcher, which is amazing. Usually non-drafted kids get weeded out after a year or two. Then he managed 10 years in the minor leagues for the Phillies, got all the way to AAA, and then was, was picked on the staff uh, three years ago to join Gabe Kapler's staff. And with Joe Girardi taking over now, he's, he's still on the staff, so hopefully he'll have a long career in coaching and managing. He actually came in second to Gabe Kapler for the manager's job, so we were hoping he'd get that. Interviewed for the manager's job with Texas a couple years ago, didn't get that, so hopefully he'll get a, a, a crack at it one day with, with another organization or maybe even the Phillies one day. Well, I'll tell you what, it's a true credit to Dusty that he can transcend more than one managerial change. That's the mark of a a kid with talent, and I say kid, he's not a kid, but a person with talent that can sustain his job through when you change managers a lot of times, and maybe not as much now as it used to be. Yeah. To do that for Kapler and then to do it for Joe Giardi, that's pretty cool. And I know you're That's Yeah, we'll see what happens. Uh, He hasn't officially worked for Giardi yet, except in spring training, so he'll still have to – win Joe over and and have Joe decide that he's the guy to continue on and coach third base. So we'll see what happens. Well, he's going to be busy. His uh, right arm or his left arm or whatever arm (laughs) he waves runners around. That's quite a team that they've put together. And Giardi, I think, will, in my opinion, be more successful than uh, Kapler was. And uh, that's a tough division. But – well, you know, Jamie, you know what makes good managers is good players. <laughs> it's funny how, how good players can help a manager along the way out. I think of Joe Torre, and I love Joe Torre. He's a great guy and a good ambassador for baseball. But if you remember, he managed in St. Louis. He managed in Atlanta. And he managed the Mets, I believe, and was well under – 100 games, maybe 150 games under 500, those first three stints. He got to New York with some pretty good players, and now he's in the Hall of Fame. So uh, it's all about the players. Uh, managers oh. can, I think managers can hurt some teams, but I think if you have a good team, you're going to win. Well, and that transcends into football, too. All you got to do is look at Belichick's record in Cleveland. Yeah, yeah, and, exactly. Uh, you know, speaking of – you raised so many points. I think I could talk to you for six hours and do 16 of these shows. But uh, the, the one point that, that I think is uh, uh, pretty cool is that your daughter is so involved with the Kansas City Royals and the, the fantasy camp. I've got a couple listeners that attended fantasy camp with the Royals, and they, they have stories. They still keep in touch with the, you know, with the major league guys. So it's it's the one place where a schmuck like me can hang out with. And I did the Cubs fantasy camp, and Pepitone was there, and Glenn Beckert, and Ron Sano, and Billy Williams. And I mean, I had a. It's a blast for people. 
It is. It really is. It's it's fun, and you know, even though you're my age now, Jamie, I think you should still come to the Royals camp. You know, <laughs> uh, we have guys. Dina started something a couple of years ago. There were guys that were getting older that had been there before and said, you know, I don't know if I can do this anymore on the field, but I'm having so much fun when I come to fantasy camp, I'd love to come again. So she, she came up with the idea of having a bench coach. Uh, so we had about five or six guys last year that didn't play, but were bench coaches uh, with all the, the coaching staff of made up of all of our alumni. And they really enjoyed that. So, I think you got to come out and be my bench coach one year. I will. I'll tell you what. I'm gonna. I'm gonna hold you to that. That would be great, Nelly. When I was, this was 2004, and you know, Dave went to the Cleveland Indians fantasy camp every year, and you know, he said, "Look, you know, when you go, listen to your body. Don't do anything stupid." So <laughs> the first live game we've got, there's a 30 year old kid playing shortstop. I'm at first base. He goes into the hole, makes a beautiful stop. Throws a knee-high throw to first base. Thinking back to my college baseball days where I warmed the bench at Southern Methodist University, I tried to do the splits. The next <laughs> thing I heard after my leg snap was Billy Williams, who was standing next to me, goes, is that your leg? <laughs> oh, my God. Six months oh. being black and blue, but. <clears throat> was a ham hamstring, I'm sure. It was a bad hammy. Yeah. Another guy that I loved and and was fortunate enough to uh, <clears throat> do a nice interview was Dick Hauser. Not mm -hmm. a better guy in the world. Yeah, Dick Dick treated me and all our players so very very well. And he was not a not a boisterous guy. He was he was quiet, but he had everybody knew he had a lot of confidence in everybody. He, he, his famous words that he used to say all the time when things were going bad: "Just get her done." Get her done. You guys will get it done. And, well, and, and we did. We did. When, when you said uh, a manager is only as good as his players, the first guy that came to mind was Hauser. I mean, what a team. And he just, from a fan standpoint, didn't get in the way. And, um, you know, it's funny. You say he was a quiet guy, and he was a quiet guy. And our firm had represented him and Rocky Calavito on a deal they got involved in. and and. Uh, so I got to know Dick a little through that. And then, of course, uh, I remember that after that, after you guys won the World Series, our firm, uh, since we owned Omaha and I'd represented some of those guys, I got to go down to Sarasota and to Fort Myers and follow Dick around till we could do an interview together. And it's my most cherished bit of memorabilia, so even though the wind was blowing. What a good guy. But. The funny thing is, he was quiet until he started talking, and then you couldn't get the guy to shut up. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you know, Jamie, we might be remiss uh, not mentioning condolences to Jim Fry, who had ties with both your Cubs, who you fondly uh, follow, and, and the Royals, who took us to the World Series in 1980. Uh, a lot of people had differences with him. You know, he got fired shortly after when Hauser became available after getting fired from the Yankees when we swept them in the playoffs. After the strike in 81, you know, Hauser took over. And so Jim was only there a year and a half. But uh, I'll tell you one thing. He let me play in 1980. I was a guy who was a bench guy for the most part up to that point. And because of a lot of injuries, I got to play 125 games that year and had my best year ever at four different positions, playing some left, some right, some first, and some catching. So uh, our condolences to him and to his family.
No, it was on my it was on my mind to talk about Jim and um you know, I don't know. I really never uh I've met him a couple times, but I never really spent any time around him, but he went on to Chicago to manage uh, I mm-hmm. think it was I I did a podcast with Bobby Denier a couple of days ago and I think Fry was the 84 manager of the Cubs. I'm not sure. He was he did manage there. He also was the general manager for a while and did some scouting with him. Uh, you know, he came over to us after having been the hitting coach for Baltimore for quite a few years under Earl Weaver. So right. he had a, a, a great career in baseball, that's for sure. Yeah, and I think he went on to the broadcast booth with the Cubs for yes. a year or two. Yeah, he did. And uh, you broadcast for some time. I did. Uh, after uh, I was let go by Boston in 1994, another strike here when the season shut down, I did some TV on the baseball network. Then I came back to Kansas City and, and did a couple of years of radio and then got into player development and scouting back with the Royals in 99 and have been there ever since. So done a little bit. I tell her, but I've done about everything. I scouted, you know, managed, played, uh, did some broadcasting. I just haven't been on the grounds crew yet or sold peanuts <laughs> at the ballpark. So uh, it's been a great career. You know, I tell her, but I don't know what I'm going to do when I grow up and have to get a real job. Well, and you know, on, excuse me, Duke, uh, you know, on, on TV and radio, there's a cough button you can hit when you cough. Yeah. It's not a baseball. People just have to put up with, uh, with, with some of these things. We don't have the, uh, it's like, you like, like Dave, I always told Dave, you know, I retired from baseball when I sat on the bench at SMU and we went like seven and 80 in 1969. And Nelly played, which I would have given anything to play. He coached. He broadcast. I mean, I, he, had, he had every job I wanted, and, and, uh, and so did you. So I just think mm-hmm. broadcasting is the greatest uh, job on the planet. And there's, I love, there's so many good broadcasters, past and present. It's one of my favorite hobbies to listen to. You know, currently I love Dwayne Stats, Tom Hamilton. Um, you mm-hmm. yeah. just can't get any better than those guys. Both great guys. Both great guys. Uh, you know, the one bad thing about broadcasting, Jamie, is the fact that you don't feel like you're a part of the team. When the game is over, you close your scorebook. And it's hard not to have that incentive or that passion to win. I mean, you want the Royals or whoever you're broadcasting for to win the game, but you don't have the same vested interest that you do when you're on the field. So that was the big difference for me. Yeah, that is a cool observation. And speaking of that, as a uh, player on two championship teams, one, the American league pennant and and the second that went all the way to win the world series and then managing what wins are, are more memorable to you uh, or more exciting to you? Did you feel a little rush when you uh, won as a manager or more, you know, when you won the World Series, I suppose? Uh, Probably as a player. Um, I think that's a bigger part. You feel uh, a big part of that. As a manager, um, you know, heads fall both ways with you. When you lose, you always wonder that night uh, what you could have done better to win or in the off season, either it's kind of consumes you 24 hours a day, 365 days out of the year, what you can do better as a manager to help your team win. But you don't feel like you really have the control you did as a player, as a player, you felt like you could help a team win. My best games 
a lot of times, ironically, were when I would catch a shutout or catch a two-to-one win because you felt like you were the quarterback calling the signals. Whether I went 0 for 4 or 4 for 4, the catching part always comes number one. Uh, so that that probably is a lot more important to me than the playing years than it was managing. I've got some great memories of managing too, getting to manage Bo Jackson and of course George Brett, uh, uh, Frank White, all, all the guys that I got to manage. Uh, it was fun for the four years I did it in Kansas City, and I did it for three months in in Anaheim as well when our manager went down after a, a bus wreck that we had. But that's another story. But I think I think playing was a lot more fun uh, than managing. Um, I enjoyed managing. I didn't always in, enjoy the media interviews, uh, but that was a part of what you had to do. Well, and neither did the guy that that I think might have replaced you. He didn't seem to fare too well with the media interviews, but a <laughs> great player, yeah. a good guy. Yeah, Al McRae. Al McRae. Um, so let's talk about game six of the 85 World Series, and then I want to get into <laughs> – 89 when you were managing and, and the team that you had and Bo Jackson, George Brett, Willie Wilson, all those guys. And one of the great, one of the guys I really like who uh, had some fame in 85, Buddy Biancolano, you managed him. But let's talk about game six of the uh, 1985 World Series, probably uh, without replay, the greatest uh, mistake in the history of, of mistakes <laughs> by an umpire. Did you think you got the call right or wrong, buddy? <laughs> no, well, I didn't know because I was in the bullpen at the time, I think. <laughs> so I couldn't, I didn't have a very good vantage point over it. But, you know, looking at it afterwards on tape, obviously, uh, not video in those days, tape, I guess. Uh, it, Don Dekinger uh, made the wrong call, and, and it was pretty obvious to everybody after seeing it. I always felt bad for Don Dankinger. He was a guy from Cedar Falls, Iowa, and I was originally from Cedar Rapids, Iowa, so I knew Don pretty well. And it, as good an umpire as he was throughout his career, it was kind of a shame that he had to remember for that one call. That's and, so Yeah, and, you know, he actually got <clears throat> some uh, death threats on phone calls from St. Louis after that series. One of the uh, – announcers on radio in St. Louis gave out his home phone number over the air, which was a travesty. And so he got a lot of terrible calls and things written about him through the years afterwards. But he actually came to our fantasy camp one year and he, he became a pretty good public speaker. And he spoke to our fantasy campers about that game and about his career. And it was really enjoying, it was really enjoyed by everybody who listened to him that night when he talked to all of us at the fantasy camp. Well, you're, you're, you, he is a really, really nice guy. He, um, he went to St. Croix. In fact, he's how Nelly got involved in St. Croix. Thank ah. you suggested to Bob Solis that he get old of uh, Dave because he lived in Florida, and uh, apparently somebody canceled, and Denkinger suggested it. So hmm, I didn't know that. When I was down there, I asked, and people that listen to the show, I've told this story, but it's a, it's a good, quick story. When the Royals took down, took up the AstroTurf, they sent season ticket holders a little plaque with a mm-hmm. that purportedly it was part of the field. I don't know if it was or wasn't, but uh, I took it to St. Croix when I knew Denkinger was going to be there, and I went up and I said, "Don, look, you know, the nice thing about this thing for a, a fan like me is I'm here for a week, and you know, I, if if you're uncomfortable signing this." I understand. And he goes, no, 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 man. I, I've gotten beyond that. And so he, 
he autographed this little plaque uh, and just a nice guy and a horrible call. I mean, it's just, but I couldn't tell because I was, I had pretty much given up. I, you know, back then the Royals would give season ticket holders double the seats. So some of my family were in the good seats behind third base. And I had two of my three boys out in the outfield bleachers. It looked like the Royals were going to lose. And I started walking back toward the other people to try to beat the crowd out of there. And all of a sudden, you know, the rest. And yeah, I think you, uh, were you, uh, involved out of the bullpen in that game? Yes. Uh, you got a good memory. I actually, uh, Pinch ran for Hal McCray at first base with Sunberg on second, who scored the run that everybody remembers. Yes. Guy named Dane Orch happened to come through, right? You know, I was, yeah, I was kind of surprised actually that I didn't pinch run for Jim Sunberg because, you know, I had stolen 17 or uh, excuse me, uh, 36 stolen bases in 1982 and could still run, uh, and I'll, I'd tell Sonny if he was here, I could still run better than Jim Sunberg. So it could have been me that scored that run. Oh, absolutely. Rather, rather than Jim Sunberg. But I, I'm not quite sure why I pinch ran for uh, Hal at first, maybe to break up a double play or something. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I got in the game, which was memorable, obviously. No kidding. And let's talk about, you know, you, you modestly throw out that number that uh, is the – continues i think to be the record for one year stolen bases by a catcher correct yeah it's it's still a record and uh the way the game is going right now it might be a record for a while though it's kind of going back uh, i don't know if you heard about the rule changes uh in the minor leagues this year which they're experimenting with a ball down there's no longer an inside turn move by the pitcher to first base or to second base and the pitchers always have to step off the rubber be thrown, before throwing to first, second, or third. So it's going to increase the possibility of stealing third base and even second base. You know, the left-handers that kind of have that hang move and you can't decide whether they're going to first or home right. do not have that luxury anymore. They have to step off before they throw to first base. And without the inside move to second base – by the way, when I played, they did not have that inside move to second base. So it was much easier – to steal third base, which it will be again if the major leagues decides to implement that new rule that they're going to try this year in the minor leagues if we ever get started. Well, that that's good because that rule didn't, at least for me, didn't get a lot of attention, unlike, you know, the having to come in in relief and face three batters unless you get the last out of the inning, et cetera, et cetera. Right, right. So, I think so that, that year, that year 82 was very special for me because, uh, I had every catcher in baseball coming up to me and pat me on the back. You know, everybody that was a catcher, they're always known for their lack of speed. And for me to be able to do that was, was pretty special and get the accolades of all the catchers in baseball. It's a funny story. Uh, I had 25 in June and fouled a ball off my ankle and was in a cast for a month. So I missed a whole month that year. I could have had more than the 36, obviously, but man, I was man. I was happy to break the record set by Ray Shock back in, I think, 1911. You know, uh, you, uh, I was going to put you on the spot. And I knew you'd know the answer, but as a, you know, I grew up, my dad grew up on the south side of Chicago, and I'm one of these rare guys that, that uh, went from being a gigantic White Sox fan to maybe being a 
Cub fan, although I wouldn't admit that to my friend Jerry Reinsdorf. <laughs> Be that as it may, um, I'm, I, last year was the 100 years anniversary of the Black Sox scandal, and I got mm-hmm. to know that roster, at least on paper, pretty well. And when I, when I uh, saw that Ray Schock had hold, held that record, and he was one of the four guys on the White Sox to get in the Hall of Fame, even though he played in the 1919 series, I laughed that you were the guy that broke his record. That's yeah. That was, now, was he on the Black Sox team? Yeah. There oh, were, God. See, that's something I didn't know. I, I knew he was a Hall of Fame catcher and he had the stolen base record and was a very good player caught a, I want to say he caught a few no hitters as well and uh but I didn't know he was on that Black Sox team yeah I think him and Red Faber I believe Eddie Collins and there was one other guy that's not coming to my mind right away and mm-hmm. it always amazed me that there were that many Hall of Famers that were on that team and I you know we don't have to get into the Pete Roses of the world but uh I always thought Joe Jackson you know Maybe he belonged in the Hall of Fame if he does. Maybe Pete does. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What do you think about the Hall of Fame and those sorts of issues? Um, I'm, I'm probably old school on it. Um, you know, in every clubhouse in the minor leagues and the big leagues, there's a big sign that talks about betting and baseball. And you have the opportunity to get banned from baseball if you do. So uh, I'm not a big believer in, in Pete getting back in. Um, the other guys with the steroids that happened, uh, you know, Roger Clemens and the boys, Barry Bonds. Um, I'm kind of waffle, waffling on that one. I'm not sure. Um, if there is proof that they were on steroids and steroids were illegal, they probably shouldn't be in either. That's that's kind of the way I'm leaning anyway. No, I lean the same way. I, you know, I've been just incredibly anti-Rose. Uh, I'm kind of pro-Joe Jackson, but that's just because of – long time ago and he was found not guilty by a jury of his peers in cook county but um the astros cheating scandal has um maybe come into play with me and the fact that they didn't the players themselves got no punishment and i thought that i agree i go back to when you know most of the time when i did handle criminal cases in the military i was typically a defense lawyer. I really didn't like prosecuting, but I, I thought to myself after Mr. Manfred did what he did, and I can understand why he did it, but I mean, you just don't cut a deal with everybody. You leave somebody out so you can prosecute somebody. And I often wondered if they hadn't cut a deal, if they had suspended or kicked some of these guys, owners, general managers, players out of baseball, would the other guys have been so openly critical or would they have been quiet? I don't know. Uh, I think you're probably right. I think you're probably right. You know, people ask me all the time. They said, well, you guys used to steal signs all the time from second base or from the third base coach relaying them to the hitters and the guys on base. I said, yeah, but that was just signs. There was no video involved. Video is a whole different animal. And I agree with the, the ruling. Uh, I agree with you that maybe some of the players, although I don't know how you would pick which players. You'd almost have to pick the whole team to penalize penalize them for a year, suspend them for a year or for longer. Uh, that would be pretty tough, but it's it, it would have been a possibility, that's for sure. Well, when you played from 
you know, from 1976 to 1985, if, if you got an inkling that somebody was going over the line or mm-hmm. that, that you saw some, you know, somebody on second base and you could tell that they were tipping location or pitches, what would a Kevin Apier do or a Brett Saberhagen do or a Gooby or all the guys that, I mean, you, you played or managed a plethora of every famous Royal that I could think of in that era. How would they have policed that situation? Well, there's no doubt about it. And we did do it on occasion. Uh, we'd come in, uh, not to hit a guy in the head, but come in, you know, chest high, waist high and knock him off the plate. Many, many times when I thought something was going on at second base, as far as relaying signs or location, uh, I would, have a sign for the pitcher to, to come in hard inside. And I would tell the guy, if that continues, you're going to keep getting more in your ribs. And that would eliminate it a lot. Today it's a little bit different because uh, uh, guys don't retaliate with the pitch inside anymore like we used to. Uh, umpires treat it a little bit differently than we did. It used to be you'd hit one, they'd hit one, and be over. Well, now they seem to warn guys too early, and sometimes they warn guys for pitches that weren't intentionally inside. I don't think they have the feel sometimes today that we had back then of how to police ourselves. Well, and ironically, if baseball had uh, had started, you know, at the end of March like it was supposed to do, and the Astros uh, played their first 30 days, I suspect that people that retaliated against them would have uh, maybe had a little bit of leniency, but I suspect, ironically, they'd have been suspended as opposed to the cheaters not getting suspended. Right. I agree. That's, that, that's one of the things that they do today. They suspend the pitcher for hitting somebody rather than just take care of, taking care of it internally by you hit our guy, we hit your guy, it's pretty much over. Yeah. <clears throat> and they had that video. I can't remember who the pitcher was for the Sox, <laughs> but – but he was one of the first guys to catch on and he calls his catcher out there. And instead of throwing at the guy's ribs, you know, he throws a slider down and away after get after figuring it out, which I laughed at. I don't think Bob Gibson or early win or those, those guys would have uh, really been that kind. <laughs> no, there's a story about Bob Gibson who somebody at the plate was digging in pretty firmly into the soil around home plate, getting a toehold, digging and digging and digging. Well, Bob Gibson came down from the mound about halfway down to home plate and said, go ahead and keep digging that hole. I'll bury you in it. <laughs> well, that's, did, uh, speaking of Gibson, did he ever come around when you were managing in Omaha? No, he really didn't come around much. I, I've met him a couple of times through the years at different things, but, uh, I was a little bit surprised that he didn't come around a little bit more. He's still yeah. living in Omaha. I hear not doing very well with his health, but he's 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 still in Omaha. That's what I heard. He had a uh, when when uh, we had the team in Omaha. He had a a bar, and I can't remember where it was. But Bill Gorman, who was the general manager, who I, oh one of my favorite people of all time, who who's passed away, uh, yeah. you know, a number of years ago. But uh, yeah, I love Bill Gorman. He's oh my god, manager. he was so funny, and uh, yeah. He, Take me over to Gibson's bar occasionally and, you know, tell Gibby, hey, he's a good guy. You know, if you want to talk to him, great. If you don't, fine. He doesn't care. And, you know, Bob was just, he was a soft-spoken guy, but, man, what a great 
great pitcher in a great era of great pitchers. Oh, you bet. Well, he's one of the guys, uh, one of the reasons for them, uh, you know, uh, raising the mound, changing the mound. I think it was about yeah. 67 or 8, I think, because what do you have, like a 1.2 ERA with 27 right wins? Yeah, you're exactly yeah. right. Yeah. That, uh, yeah. God, it's just such a fun era to watch baseball in. And, um, I just laugh when uh, I'm talking about and thinking about Bill Gorman. What a what an interesting guy. And when we um, when we were negotiating with the Royals, it was funny because I had no idea that Kansas City was trying to sell the Omaha team, and shareholders had no idea that um, we were trying to buy the team. But we knew each other, went to the same church, played on the same church softball team, and. Um, it cost Gus about 65 grand in a broker's fee because we ended up going through a broker. But uh, part of the deal, there were a couple of specifics, and I don't know why, but uh, one part was that we had to maintain, we, in order to buy the team, we had to keep Bill Gorman. And uh, <laughs> the guy was so funny. That was a good thing. Hey, I got a Bill Gorman story you mentioned earlier about your uncle Gus having trouble with my name intentionally when we'd have our rooming list on the road, we'd forward ahead to the hotel when we'd go on the road to, you know, Des Moines or Indianapolis or Denver, wherever we were playing every single time he would intentionally misspell my name <laughs> in, a, in every way possible. Wadham, Waltham, Watton, every way. Nick Schwartz, our trainer would always show okay. me the rooming list and every single time it would be spelled differently, which he did intentionally when he sent that rooming list in. Well, and, you know, he, <clears throat> Gus, was, uh, <clears throat> you know, Gus was all about business. And I remember he wanted to charge people for watching the 4th of July fireworks outside of Rosenblatt. <laughs> so I'd go in there and try to <clears throat> ease, uh, ease Gus's uh, feelings from time to time. And Gorman would, would uh, laugh and he started introducing me and made a business card for me. I still have a bunch of them. And instead of vice president or whatever the hell my stupid position was, it was on my card. It was Gus Cherry's nephew. <laughs> so <laughs> he was always a character. Yeah. Yeah. Great guy. His son worked for the Brewers for a while. He had a, uh, a desk near, uh, near Dave at one point. I don't oh, think he does yeah. work for the Brewers front office, but, uh, you know, he, he, uh, he was a character, that's for doggone sure. Let's talk a little bit about before we let you go and tee off before the rain comes in. Let's talk about managing some of the guys you played with. How how did that work out? Uh, that was not easy. Uh, when I got the call, I was in Denver when John Sherholz called me managing Omaha. We had about a week or 10 days to go in the season, probably August 22nd, 3rd, somewhere in there. Meyer Lake season, of course, getting over late August, early September. And he called me and, and uh, said, uh, I'd like you to come and manage. Billy Gardner was a manager at, time, at the time. who had taken over for for Dick, of course. But I said, you know, absolutely. I, I didn't know if I was ready or not having managed just that one year in Omaha. But when you get that opportunity, you don't want to turn it down because you don't know when it might come again with only 30 jobs in baseball. So I, I took it. And – Flew to Kansas City right from Denver and, and uh, was put in the captain's seat right away. And so I called the seven guys that I had played with into the office and said, guys, I didn't ask for this. I don't know if I'm ready or not. 
I probably would have been better off having three or four years managing the minor leagues, having you guys moved on or retired, but this is what it is. And I can really use your help. Uh, please, I'm going to have to treat you a little bit differently than when we were players, obviously, as far as the camaraderie and everything in the clubhouse, but I need your help. And so I want you to come with me and tell me if, if there's anything that I could be doing differently to help our club win. And for the most part, most of them were pretty good. Not always, but for the most part, pretty good. But it was a difficult situation to manage guys in the big leagues, uh, seven guys that you had played with and uh, for a long, long time, for the most part. Well, and what a great team in 89. I mean, yeah. that was a hell of a team. And, and uh, the guy that managed that ball club was pretty damn good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we won uh, 92 games, I believe, that year. And uh, oh. unfortunately... There was only two divisions in each league at that time, so there was no wild card. We ended up uh, seven games back from Oakland in the Western Division, who had won 99 games that year. So we didn't get in the playoffs. Uh, had there been a third division, we would have been a wild card for sure with 92 wins. And yeah. who knows what, what could have happened then. And in 87, that, that first year that I came up in August, you know, we, we almost won the division that year. We won the first two games in Minnesota with uh, you know only I think we were only a game back or two games back we got within one one of them and then we lost that last game and then Minnesota went on to win winning the next couple of games uh, I think there was only three games left in the season or something like that after we had won the two out of three in Minnesota and I sometimes wonder if my managerial career would have lasted a little bit longer had we gotten the playoffs and maybe get the World Series in 87. Yeah, it's funny how that works out, I guess. You probably analyze it more, but at least uh, my friend Mr. Sherholz was smart enough to leave the nucleus of that 85 team together for as long as he could. Yeah, yeah you look at uh, the opposite of that, me not staying but four years, uh, Tom Kelly, who was the manager at that time, was just starting out as well. And Gosh, he must have managed 15 years, I bet, in Minnesota through some poor seasons, but through some good ones, too. He was a very good manager, and deservedly so. Got that time in Minnesota to manage a long, long career. Well, how was it to manage uh, Bo Jackson? Well, it was uh, – you were kind of in awe every day, wondering what he was going to do next. Um, the long home runs, obviously, were a big part of Bo's game. The throws – especially the one he made in Seattle from the warning track to get Harold Reynolds at the plate who was running on, on the play from first base all the way in the air to Bob Boone to make the tag. Uh, everybody's seen him run up the wall in Baltimore. Uh, a lot of things were just amazing how fast he was for his size. When he first got called up from double-A Memphis, I was coaching first base at the time. That was in the second half of 86 after Dick got sick and, I can still remember how hard he ran and the sound it made going to first base. It sounded like a freight train. But with that, it was also excellence in um, – what's the word I'm looking for? Um, style points, uh, perfect running form, uh, just unbelievable athlete, the things he could do. You know, I always wondered if, if Bo had uh, – you know, played baseball a little bit more as a kid and, and worked at it a little bit more, uh, what he would have been like. And I'm sure he would have had a chance to be in the Hall of Fame had he not got hurt. Well, uh, yeah. That was really a shame. Uh, in fact, <laughs> in spring training, I don't know if how many people listening will 
will be aware of this, but in spring training, there's a certain date that if you don't release a player, you have to pay him full salary. And I had to release Bo by myself in spring training. I wasn't quite sure how that was going to go with his size compared to me and his strength. (laughs) But he he, he took it very, very well and was understanding of of the fact. And, uh, you know, I still feel like Bo's a friend today. In fact, he's been to several of our fantasy camps in the spring training out in Surprise. And uh, we get along great. He's a a great individual and was, was one of the best athletes to ever play football and baseball. Have you uh, had the privilege of playing golf with him? I did many, many years ago. I understand he's pretty good right now. At the time, he had just taken it up. And I understand he's, he's, he's at it pretty good now and, and uh, doing very well at the game. Well, <clears throat> my wife and I were at, in a Chicago suburb uh, near where we grew up. And public course, we're getting ready to tee off. And this guy drives up in a golf cart. And he had a, a friend with him. and. Uh, he introduces himself as uh, Vince, which of course was his God-given name. Yeah. And uh, I said, you know, I, I, I'm pretty involved in, in baseball and you can be Vince all you want, but uh, you're one hell of a, a, a player and, and I respect everything and especially your right to privacy. This guy could drill a golf ball, not always in the right zip code, Drill yeah. Off yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, you also bring up, and it still hurts. Uh, my uh, loyalty to Uncle Gus. We got you know, and Fogelman owned the Memphis team, and then ultimately tried to buy the Royals, and he was involved in the litigation that we represented successfully. I might add, the Kansas City Royals and Mr. Kaufman, but. Bo wasn't the only guy to go right from double A to the major leagues, costing us a big, big, let me underscore, big, very important <laughs> to guess, big gate. Oh, my God. You think? Oh, <laughs> so I had nothing to do with it, Jamie. I, I, had nothing, I was coaching first base when he got called up. This <laughs> was one game with Bo. But the same thing happened with uh, Saberhagen, and the same thing happened with Gooby. They went yeah. right double-A, missed Omaha, and we had, you know, suffered as a result. But I, I always laugh because uh, Gus, again, he, he liked uh, to figure out how he could uh, uh, capitalize on some fans in a good way. He loved it. He, yeah. He, I think his favorite times, he, he loved the chicken, and he loved – he'd take these guys back in the office. He wouldn't watch the game. He loved Ted the chicken. And he loved Buck O'Neill. I loved I loved Ted the Chicken. Matter of fact, he's he was from San Diego, of course, starting out with the Padres, the San Diego Chicken. My my wife Nancy went to the same high school as him at different times, obviously. Oh, but, that's great. Yeah, so it, it's always funny that people and and places you go in baseball after almost fifty years that that knows somebody that you know, or there's always a story about something in baseball that our paths have crossed somewhere along the line. No, that's so true, and it's 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 why I'm 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 so appreciative. And I thought about calling this show "One Degree of Dave Nelson" because a lot of the people I met uh, were through Dave. But then, you know, with the <clears throat> representation of the Royals for a while in that litigation, and having a I had a, a Nelly and I. He was such a good judge of talent. Uh, we had, Dave would say, you know, a lot of these young guys don't get the benefit of representation. Would you think about starting a company and representing them? So, 
you know, we represented and Dave would pick out the guys and mostly with the White Sox, but I mean, Karkovic, Kenny Williams, John Cangelosi. Um, I had Nelson Sanovania who went from Montreal to the Kansas City Royals. You may have even been around when he was catching a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then a kid named Jeff Schultz, who I think you managed. Oh, yeah. Schultz goes, as long as you own the, your family owns the Royals, you ain't going to touch any of the guys on Kansas City. And, of course, everybody I represented, uh, with the exception of a couple, when they get to the major leagues, it was, see you later, Jamie. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with X's uh, agent. He said I should. <laughs> it was a tough yeah. business. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I loved it and got to meet a lot of guys. And then with, uh, with the Omaha deal, you know, there's just so many, so many nice guys. Um, Kenny Berry, who played for the White Sox, and he was a coach with the, the Royals uh, for a while. And, and mm-hmm. when you and I were visiting, you know, you'd drop a name. I, I'd say somebody. And, man, you had a, a, a professional relationship with those guys, like the Chili Davises of the world. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Well, Duke, and, uh, you know, we didn't even get into your uh, nickname, Duke. We'll save that. I hope you uh, had a good enough time today that we can do this again. But I, I was gonna, I was gonna suggest that before you said that. Uh, I'd love to do it again. I had a great time. It's always great to talk baseball, especially with uh, people who know the background of the Kansas City Royals as well as you do, Jamie. Well, I, you know, since '79, I've had various <laughs> involvements with the Royals, um, and uh, I just have always appreciated knowing you, talking to you, and, and you're such a stand-up guy, and I'm not blowing smoke just to get you back on the show because you already said you'd do it again. So <laughs> I love you. Be Thank safe. You. And uh, I'm going to shut this down, but stay on the line for two seconds if you could, okay? Sure. So for John Wathen, my guest, and uh, a future guest on on, uh, on the lighter side of baseball, maybe in a week or maybe in a, in a shorter period of that time, Jamie Uretsky on the lighter side of baseball. I hope it's been a little bit light for you folks out there. I appreciate you listening on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, my Facebook. If I knew how to work it, it'd be better, but that's okay. (laughs) It's been a great time with John catching up with him and go Royals and everybody be safe out there. Thanks for listening. And we will see you down the road. Bye.